Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. Seacoast, how we doing? You guys all right? You guys having a good morning? Well, hey, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Matt, and uh, a joy, honor to be here with you guys today. So excited uh, that you guys are here today. Now, uh, if we haven't met or uh, any of that, my name, like I said, is Matt. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Seacoast, and I also run our young adults program. So if you are a young adult, by the way, we have a program just for you. It meets in the warehouse tonight at 7.15. We'd love to have you. Now, if uh, you've ever heard me speak before, you know that I, I teach a little bit different and I talk about maybe even faster than Doyle, but I like to ask questions, right? And uh, often I speak to kids, right? So I gotta, you know, I gotta keep it real quick. But uh, I like to ask questions and kind of get you guys to turn, discuss kind of a question that's gonna set us up for where we're headed today. So I'm gonna give you guys a question. I just want you guys to turn for 15 or 20 seconds or so. And here's the question. What has been the biggest life change for you in the last year? So think about it. Was it someone that graduated? Did you finally get your kids out of the house? What was it, right? So think about whatever the biggest life change was in the last season, year of life. I'm going to give you 15 or 20 seconds. Ready, set, go. Bring it up, bring it up. All right, raise your hand if uh, in the last year, big changes have happened in your life. All right, all right, cool. All right, put your hands down. So uh, if you've been around here or you know me, you know that my life has been flipped upside down. I officially and finally joined Team Dad, the Dad Squad, right? So, you. Uh, you know, Cody always tells me I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get a dad bod, but I, I call it a father figure. So, you know, it's a whole thing. But anyways. Uh, so my daughter, Noelle, right? She is, uh, she's, she's precious. I love her. her. She has the coolest birthday. It was 2-2-22, which is awesome, right? Like, I can't be one of those dads that forgets my daughter's birthday, obviously, right? I would be, that'd be horrific, right? I have some photos to show you guys so you guys can kind of meet her um, of, of what she looks like and who she is. I don't know if we have, there it is, perfect. So yeah, I became uh, one of those dads where that's now my screensaver, you know? Like, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. Uh, I think you go to the next photo. Yeah, this is, uh, this is my wife, and this is her mom, Connie's favorite photo. Go to the next one. Yeah, yeah, so every morning I'm greeted with this, right? She announces really loudly that she's awake to the entire world, and then uh, I, I, I run over to her, and she's just like so hyped to be awake and out of her bed at five o'clock in the morning, and then uh, I think I have maybe one or two more. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after I feed her, sometimes I just place her like that, and she's like, do you not, are you new to this whole thing? Like, you're supposed to hold me. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, what's going on here, right? And uh, do I have one more? I do, uh, yeah, yeah, one more. Yeah, yeah, so uh, this is her just passed out, man. She's just got a full stomach, a warm milk that she's about to spit up. She's just out of it, right? You know, you could take the photos down. You know, she's captured my heart. You know, I love watching her smile. I love watching her play. You know, I especially love watching her wake up my wife, Chelsea, at 2, 4, and, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning, right? Because obviously I can't nurse, so thanks for that one, God, right? But I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, being a dad is great, and I'm learning so much day in and day out, right? The first time I actually ever held a baby was mine, 
<laughs> like seconds after like she was born, right? So they're like, you know, here. And I was like, ah, uh, you know. So I'm like holding it like an expensive glass vase, you know, like, you know, like, like walking around the hospital, like, you know, like Chelsea, you know, like, it's like, it's like I have no idea what I'm doing, you know? And uh, yeah, I'm learning so much. You know, the first diaper that I ever changed was, uh, was Noel's. And um, I wish someone could have told me, you know, just how bad their diapers could actually be. Or even how often they, you know, they pass gas. Their stomachs are just, they're just so full of hot air. She obviously gets that from her mother's side, Cody. But uh, <laughs> anyways, you know, every Tuesday is, uh, is my day with her. And Chelsea comes into work, uh, you know, early. And I come in a little later because we, uh, we have junior high on Tuesday nights. And so I get to kind of spend the morning with her. And I love that day. It's one of my favorite days. You know, I just get to hang out with my little girl. And so we watch TV, we laugh, we play. And um, like I said, we have breakfast and we have lunch uh, together. It's one of my favorite days of my week. You know, but as a little human being, right, it's, she's so fascinating to me. I just wonder what her, her first words are going to be. I hope it's not going to be mine. And so I keep, I, I want it to be dada, you know. So for like hours on Tuesday, I go dada, 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 dada. You know, just hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, really letting that word just marinate into that little brain, you know. Like, and so recently my wife found out that I've been doing that. And she goes, that's great. I'm so glad you've been doing that now. Because when she, we put her in her room, in her crib, finally she'll wake up at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning going dada, 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 dada. So now for eight hours on Tuesday, I go, ma, 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 you know, just really letting that marinate in. You know, since uh, the birth of my daughter, I've really been thinking about fatherhood and what it means to be a good dad. And I'm coming to realize that a, a dad is someone that is so much more than a person who um, has pictures of where his money used to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> All jokes aside, I've been thinking about fatherhood a lot lately, and I've been thinking about good questions, right, to set me up to make good decisions so that I can be a good parent. But here's the thing about good questions, right? All good questions are terrifying because they're clarifying. They're kind of illuminating if you start to ask good, challenging, and tough questions. So here's some of the questions that I've been thinking about as I recently became a father a handful of months ago. How, how is my daughter, or at least how do I want my daughter to relate to me? What am I revealing about who I am to her? What will she think of me and what does she think of me now? Will she know me as a father of law or will she know me as a father of relationship? Will she fear me when she messes up or will she run to me saying that I gotta get my dad involved in this? See, the truth is, as a father, I, I can make her fear me. I can make her obey me until she's a teenager. <laughs> I, uh, I even probably can, I know, not let her date until she's got gray hair, right? Which, Noel, if you're watching in the future, still in the cards. But I can also discipline her, right? I can restrict her freedoms. I can, you know, take away her future iPhone 19 or whatever it's going to be. And I can, I can, I have a lot of maybe control over her life. I can support, encourage her. I can give her some nice things. But the truth is, I can't make her love me. I can't make her decide to choose me to walk her down the aisle one day, right? I can't make her want a relationship with me, desire to invest in our relationship now and in the future. So I guess the question is, what is under my control? I guess all that's really under my control, right, is that I can reveal my character to her in the moments that I'm with her. I can share my heart for her, share my life with her in hopes that one day she would look upon me and say, that's my dad who I love and I know he loves me deeply. I guess it's simple, right? Well, what I can do as a parent is all I can do is open up my heart in hopes that one day she would open up hers. Now, if this is true of how we relate to our kids, right? Wouldn't this also be true about how God the Father, about God relates to us? See, the truth is God is mighty. He's not bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can think. He begins where your imagination comes to an end. And so the truth is God could make us fear him, force, coerce us to obey him. God could restrict, God could punish us, but that wouldn't make us love him, choose him, want a relationship with him. So the question that we're going to be kind of going through today is, I guess, how has God revealed himself to us, shared his heart for us, shared his life with us in hopes that one day we would look upon him and say, that's my heavenly father who I love and I know he loves me deeply. See, scripture is rich in its depictions of who God is and what he's like. 
Jesus is one of, one of the, the, the most important things that Jesus worked to do was to explain to us what the character, personality, nature of God was like. And so he showed up to show us what he was like. And so it's rich in his depictions of who God is from the entire Bible. It's, he's mentioned as a shepherd who longs for his lost sheep. If you were here, I spoke about that last year in November. Or Good Friday, I shared with you that as a savior who died the very same way that he lived, with his arms wide open, willing and ready to accept all people. He's also in scripture kind of depicted as a, as a father who just wants a relationship with his son, with his children. See, the Bible is clear from cover to cover that God is like a good, loving father who just wants a relationship with his children. Now, I want to kind of pause out really quick because I realize, I realize that the word father, and out of all the words that I get the privilege of speaking about and preaching on, father, I realize the word father sums up and conjures up for many of us something like something really positive, Right? I mean, you had a great, you had an intentional father. He sought after you. He provided for you. He cared for you. He loved you deeply. And so when you think about your dad, you have fond memories of him. I realize for another segment of us here today that when you think about the word father, something negative, extremely negative maybe comes up. He was controlling. He was selfish. Maybe he was absent. Maybe he was maybe even abusive. Finally, I realize for another segment of us, it's not just that you are it's not just negative, it's painful, right? Because you wanted nothing more than a father to be there with you, for you. So all the other kids had dads, you realized, my life looks a little bit different, right? You wanted nothing more for a father to be present in your life. And now the place of your heart that was supposed to be filled with direction and, and, and love and guidance from a father is just kind of a, an ache. And so I understand for many of us here today that you don't have a good present father, but you can have a good, present, and loving Heavenly Father. And so today, that's what I want to spend some time talking about. Today, I want, to, I want to journey through one of the most famous stories ever told by Jesus about our Heavenly Father, about how He feels about you, about how He seeks after you, about how He loves you unconditionally. You know, one thing I've learned is that, that stories, we just love them, right? We just gravitate towards good stories, good narratives. There's something about them that we, we just enjoy, whether it be a movie or, or, or a book, we love them. Now, when we were little, right, all the great stories started with Once Upon a Time, and they ended with the end or happy ever after, right? And there were stories of good guys and bad guys and princesses and princesses and or, or princes and all these other types of stuff. And now the stories that we're probably most drawn to are a little bit different, maybe, I hope, right? But one thing I've learned is that stories are powerful. They have a way of influencing and impacting our lives in a way that just pure facts don't. Stories have a way of maybe inviting you I into the narrative and force us to ask some important questions like, who am I in the story? Can I relate to any of the experiences of the characters in this story? Do I resonate with any of these experiences? You know, for centuries now, commentators have said that Jesus Christ was the greatest storyteller that the world had ever known. And the stories that he told were called parables. Now, a parable, for those of us that are new to the whole Jesus thing and church thing, or maybe you're new to church in, in totality, I'm excited you're here. Let me quickly tell you what a parable is. I don't want to use a churchy word and Bible word without defining it, right? A parable is a, is a fictitious story told by Jesus designed to teach a truth. Now, it could be a truth about heaven or hell, about sin, salvation, um, about maybe even the character and what God is like himself, God the Father, which we're going to talk about today. But to make it simple, right, a parable is an is a, is a earthly story designed to teach us a spiritual or heavenly truth, right? So it, Jesus would look out and survey an audience that he was speaking to like this, and he would kind of try to find the backstories of the people that were there. And, and, and maybe he recognized some faces like I do here, and he would in the moment, he was better than I am, and so he'd conjure up a story that met the people where they were at to adequately describe to them a teaching that they needed to digest and understand to move them forward in faith. And so today, I want to I 
teach you. I want to walk through a story that Jesus told, the most famous parable that Jesus has ever told called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, this is the most famous, the most beloved story that Jesus ever told. It was Shakespeare made plays about it. Rembrandt painted things about it. Right? Like he, he, this was an, an incredibly famous story. It's in, in uh, um, People said it's the greatest short story ever penned in human history or shared with mankind. And so this is also the longest parable that Jesus has ever given, which is interesting, right? Because that means that I think that Jesus is trying to teach us something about the main character in this narrative, in this story. And so as we enter into and journey into our story for today, I want to first acknowledge who the characters are. We're going to meet the Father, and the Father is ultimately to reveal to us God the Father. So when you see his mercy, forgiveness, and grace, his kindness and gentleness, his love for people who are nothing like him, he is representing an illustrative of God the Father. And then there's two sons in the story. And the two sons are opportunities for you and I to insert ourselves in this narrative, into this story. Now, last thing before we journey into our story today is I'm not actually really fond of the title of this parable. Now, I think we're safe to say that uh, uh, I'm not fond of it because Jesus didn't name it the parable of the prodigal son, right? Because I don't think it's a story about two sons. Rather, I think it's a story about illuminating the gracious nature of the father in the story. If you have a Bible, do me a favor, go with me to Luke chapter 15. And uh, as you turn there, I'm in the ESV, and if you don't have a Bible, I think the verses will be up here. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Jesus shares uh, a story, a series of three stories, um, after a group of overly legalistic and religiously spirited individuals. They were called the Pharisees. Now, they were the top tier of the Jewish society, and they, they were the people that thought they were so good, and it was their moral responsibility to point out to everyone else how bad, flawed, and ugly they were. Now, I'm sure you know some of these people, right? You probably have, you see them on Facebook all the time, right? So you know who these people are, right? Now, there's another group of people that are in this crowd. They're called the sinners or the tax collectors. They're like the really, really bad ones. No one likes the IRS, right? But they're the, they're the, they're the, they're the really, really, really bad ones. And the sinners, they were, they were people that thought, God never thinks about me. God couldn't like me. I'm nothing like him, right? So Jesus tells this story. Now, the sinners, right? They were people, we said last time, that got a sin list as long as a CVS receipt. Just going and going and going and going, right? It's an encyclopedia, right? No one uses the coupon. Anyways, uh, and so they got a backstory. Maybe, maybe, maybe they've lived a life. Maybe their, their bottoms have been more at, at, at seated at bars than they were at churches, you know? So they're, they're, they got a story. And so Jesus spontaneously shares this story after a complaint given to him about why he's hanging out with the riffraff of the society. Jesus, why are you hanging out at the bars? Jesus, why are you, why are you hanging out with the people with that sin list? What's up? You're not hanging out with the religious people. Jesus answers their complaint with a, uh, three clever and revealing stories about God the Father. And so it begins with the lost sheep. I shared with you last time about that, where one out of 99, lost, uh, one is lost out of the 99. It represents a 1% loss, right? Then in the next story, it's a lost coin. A woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one, and it represents a 10% loss. Now, the next parable that Jesus tells, all in succession, represents one out of two sons that are lost, a relational loss of 50% to the father. With that as the framework in the back of your mind, follow with me, the book of Luke chapter 15, verse 11, it says this, there was a man, we're introduced to the father first, who had two sons. The younger, probably a teenager, right? Of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the property. I want you to highlight that word that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. You know, as a father, right? Like this is crushing. Let me take a time machine and bring you to what this would have meant in antiquity, what the audience would have heard while Jesus was giving this story. Father, dad, 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 the best case scenario is that you're dead, that your heart stops. And because you aren't dead, can we just in this moment maybe act like you are dead so that I can get my inheritance right here and right now? Now, 
Most dads would like punt their kid like, like you know, that wouldn't happen. But this dad does something interesting. He actually does this, right? He, he cashes in his 401k. He sells off his passive income properties. He liquidates all of his other assets, all at a massive financial loss to give to this ungrateful son, disrespectful, dishonoring son, all that would have been his if he would have actually died. The word property here is interesting. It's where the Greek bios, where we get biology, he divided up his life, all of his life to give to the son. Now in a culture, right, soaked in the Ten Commandments. This is a Jewish culture, right? Uh, People memorized the, the Torah. They memorized the Ten Commandments, right? So in a culture soaked in the Ten Commandments, especially about the one honoring your mother and father. I see you students over there. This is the most dishonoring, disgraceful thing that you could possibly ever do, right? This is the most dishonoring thing ever. In fact, it was tradition. This was seen as such a heinous crime and sin, not before just your father, before God the Father as well, that you would treat your father this way, that after you kicked your son out of the house, kicked him out of the village, kicked him out of the synagogue and church, that then at your house, you would house a funeral service for your boy. Because now he was considered dead to you. He was no longer alive. I want you to put that in the back of your mind because it's an important part of the story. Follow with me. Verse 13. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he took, all he had and took a journey into the far country. There he squandered his property or his life in the wreck of living. So after the father hands him what seems to be like a really large sum of money, which you can almost imagine, right? The father's just sitting here with a check or a bag of cash. I don't know what it looks like, right? The, the ungrateful son kind of just, you can imagine, snatches it from his hand with a sense of entitlement, turns and walks away. And then the image that I get is the father, his eyes are just welling up in tears and he's beginning to weep and cry. And his son turns around and walks away to the far country, away from the father. And the father's just wanting his son to just turn back. Well, I get one more look of him. Will he look back at me one more time? But he never does. And so step by step, he goes away from the father to the far country where he thinks a better life will be. Now in that far country, he buys new a lifestyle that he couldn't afford for that long. And he purchased the outward elements of what appears to be a full life, right? So he's got the German sports car. He got the two-story house that he's already remodeled two or three times in one year's time. He's got the nice Rolex and watch and the fresh new outfit. And he's even made some friends by buying bottle service for everybody at the club. He's gotten pretty popular there. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. This is the equivalent. Next thing you know, there is an economic downturn, right? He's upside down on his house. He can't afford the lease on a sports car. If you can't believe it, gas price is $7 a gallon. Wild. And it gets so bad, he's using Craigslist and eBay, right? To sell off some possessions and just stay afloat a few more weeks. He's got the Xbox and PlayStation, the flat screen TV and the Yeezys and Nikes and jerseys. He's selling it all to stay afloat. Just a few more weeks, Right? Fast forward those few more weeks and the bake repossesses his house and he's now homeless and he's living on park and bus benches with the totality of his life in a Jansport backpack that he now uses also as a pillow. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pogs that the pigs ate and no one highlight gave him anything. This is the equivalent Jesus tells a story that he has now reached rock bottom. Things are not going well for this Young boy. Now, this is a scandalous, hard labor job for a Jewish boy. They can't eat bacon. They can't touch pork, let alone he is washing them. He is feeding them. He is giving them water. This is not the job that a young Jewish boy should be doing. It was considered dirty and sinful. And there's no one there, right? There's no one there to help him. No one there to be there for him. No one there to give him a handout in any sense of the way. In fact, the last gift that this young boy ever got was from his father. And he didn't treat him too well. And so now... This young boy is now starving. He's impoverished. He longs for anything that's going to fill the emptiness in his heart. 
More importantly, the vacancy in his heart, or the emptiness in his stomach, the vacancy in his heart. I can imagine one day, right, they, they, he's got one of those like orange Home Depot five-gallon buckets, you know. He's filling it up with water. He's bringing it over to the, fig, the, the pig trough and pig pen, and he's kind of pouring the water into the, the, the area, and, and maybe it's the first glimpse, the first time he sees himself in, in weeks as a reflection in the, the water. And in this moment, he's shocked. He realizes how much weight he's lost, that his cheekbones are sticking out of his untamed and oil-filled beard. And he realizes that he looks nothing like the fullness he had when he was with the father. This glimpse of depravity reminds him of the decency of his father. What does Romans 2 for? It says it's God's goodness, God's kindness that leads people to repentance, to turn around and go towards him. As he's thinking about the father, he's wondering, am I going to go back? He realizes in this moment something that's pivotal, that the father was better than anything and everything I was tempted to leave him for. Anything and everything that this world has to offer, the father is better. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. So he's thinking about the the people that make hourly wages. My, My dad is so generous. My dad is so good that even the people that work for him for an hourly wage, he pays above and beyond. He allows them to live on their property or he pays their mortgage. They at least have enough money not to be eating top ramen or whatever it may be, right? So I wonder what my dad's thinking about me. And so he starts to think about his father, think about it, and he's remembering and experiencing the father's goodness, and that is it is, creates a desire in him to go back, to repent. That's an old churchy term that means more than turn from your sin, it means to turn towards the father. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. And both of those are true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He starts to develop kind of a pre-planned speech. You ever done this? You ever like, remember way back when you were a kid, and maybe, maybe you were a smarter student than I, but I, I got Caesar degrees, you know? And so... Uh, <laughs> and so I, I wasn't always a stellar student, let's say. And uh, I would always be thinking, okay, how am I going to explain this grade to mom and dad? You know, so I'm, I'm developing a pre-planned speech, right? Or maybe he was hunting, I forgot our anniversary, you know, whatever it may be, right? And so you're pre-planning a speech, right? And so he in this moment, right, is developing a speech that he is rehearsing over and over. And he's putting commas and pauses in the right place. He's developing a syntax that appropriately describes to the father the guilt that he feels and, that if, and if, that if he can ask to be back and all these different types of questions. And the one question that's going through his mind as he's saying his phrase and his, his, his uh, speech over and over and over and over, as he's, I just imagine walking home, kicking a can down the street, I wonder if he's going to take me back. I wonder if he wants me back. I mean, if he only knew what I, what, what I got into, Right, if he only knew the things that I was doing, the things that I used, the resources that he gave me on, how I've squandered my life, how I haven't been to church in months or years now, how I haven't, I've been drinking, doing drugs, if he only knew, he wouldn't want me back. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a highlight, long way off, his father saw him and felt in the crowd in this moment, I remember he's speaking, Jesus is telling the story, would have interjected and they would have said anger, rage, hate. That's how you're supposed to feel when someone treats you like this. How dare he treat the father, the good father, like this? Well, he's still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion. The whole audience went, er, the train stopped. He's, everyone's perplexed and everyone's confused. He ran and embraced and kissed him. The Greek develops an inference where he's kissing his cheek over and over and over and over and over and over. The audience is all confused because everyone knows when Jesus goes off on these wild stories that he calls parables, he's supposed to ask two questions. Who am I in the story and who is God? Who am I in the story and who is God? And here we have Jesus painting a picture, developing a story that God the Father 
is standing on the balcony of his house, scouring the skyline, looking for his prodigal, looking for his lost, looking for his son or daughter to come home. Not with a spirit of anger or disgust, but with forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace. They're shocked. Neither of the Pharisees nor the sinners understood what God the Father was like. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servant, bring quickly, before I can hear any of his excuses, tell me what he's been doing. Before any of that, let me bring the best robe and put it on him. Let me cover him completely. All the dirt, all the smelliness, all the shame, all the guilt, let me envelope him. Put a ring on his finger. This isn't the family insignia ring. Before I can hear any of the things that he's been doing, his sin list, all that, let's graft him, adopt him, bring him back into my family, into this family. Put shoes on his feet. It appears over the, we don't know how long, six months, 12 months, 18 months, years maybe, how long the young boy has been away, that things got so rough during this economic downturn, this famine and drought, that he had to sell his own shoes. And so he has to walk all the way back home with the ache of being barefoot. Father says, let's bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this, my son was now dead. Now he's alive. It went from a funeral to a birthday. He's lost and found and began to celebrate. And can you imagine like how overwhelmed, how unworthy this son must have felt being embraced by his good father like this? Here's the truth, right? He didn't deserve it. Like in no sense of the way did this son deserve this embrace. But the father's the father of grace. Let's meet our next character. Now, older son was in the field, and he came drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. The image is that the older son is working on the father's farm in the heat of the day, maybe it's six, seven, eight hours. He's got a sunburn by now, and he's a little bit dehydrated. And all of a sudden, he sees in the far corner on the left side, he sees that there looks to be a DJ setting up. And he looks next to the patio, and there's a taco man that's there. And he hears maybe what appears to be like a, the piercing of a gunshot. And he glances behind him, and he sees that they've killed the Kobe and Wagyu calf that was supposed to be for his wedding. And he's perplexed. He's, what's going on? That was supposed to be for me and my fiance. I'm, what's happening? What's going on? Looks like we're preparing something for someone celebrating a feast. Called one of his servants and asked, what do these things mean? What's, what's happening? And he said to him, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Dude, can you believe it? Dude, your younger brother is, is back. He's only been gone for 18 months. He looks like he's aged 18 years, right? But he's back. Can you believe he's back? Your dad is stoked. He's throwing a party, inviting the entire town, including the synagogues and the religious leaders. He doesn't care about the shame that it brings into his life. He's just excited that his boy is back and that your younger brother is back. Can you believe it? He's throwing a party. Now, the older brother has an interesting attitude here. But he was angry and refused to go in. The father came out to him and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, I want you to highlight this word. These many years I had served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat. I'm not even celebrating with my friends. But when the son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, dad, look, I know. You're ancient. You don't have an Instagram and a Facebook and a TikTok, right? You don't see what's going on, what he's sending to everybody. He's, he's going to strip clubs and bars. He's, he's drinking, getting drunk all the time, doing drugs and cocaine. He is not your boy anymore. Dad, the sin that's in his life should separate you, should no longer make you want to desire him, his backstory, and what he has been doing should make you hate him like I do. You killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you're always with me and, I'm, and all that is mine is yours. Son, I gave him his inheritance. Yours is still fine. There's room in my heart for both you guys. What's going on here? It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and was found. We've got three characters in our story, right? We have the father who wants nothing more to be with his boys. We have the 
younger son, who I imagine, right, is in the front yard. So guilt-ridden, shame-filled that he can't even walk through the threshold of the door he used to go in and out of every single day. And then in the backyard, you have the older brother with his arms crossed, indicative of the hardness of his heart, right? He's angry at the merciful father that he has. And he thinks that he's better than everybody else and he deserves, the father owes him something, right? See, the older brother has a legalistic and religious spirit. And the problem here is that the older brother related to his father as a slave does to a master, not as a son does to a father. Tim Keller, the pastor says, his father was merely a command giver and he was a command keeper. Therefore, merits, not mercy, was the foundation of the relationship and mercy to the undeserving made him angry. Here's the greatest irony of this entire story. Both of the sons are prodigals, but only one son remains one. So what does the older brother teach us? It shows us, right, that there is more than one way to be lost. It shows us that he was in a faraway country too, not because he was far from home, but rather because he was far from the father's heart. See, the truth in the tell is that those who believed were better than others, those of us who look down on people whose lives aren't as picture perfect as ours, and we're even further away from God than those people are, See, the story paints a beautiful picture of our father who runs towards the far country to the prodigal and then runs to the backyard to the older brother who's far from the father's heart, even though he's right here at church, I mean home. See, the prodigal rebellious son is someone who looks for life from the father who gives it abundantly. Now, when they sin, right, it's big, it's bold, it's plastered all over the walls of Facebook and Instagram for everyone to see. But the older religious and legalistic son probably has a good church attendance is someone who looks for life by working for the father but doesn't care to be with the father. When they sin, it isn't as big and bold, but it's plastered all over the walls of their hardened hearts and judgmental minds. See, they think that if everyone could just be like them, vote like them, think like them, well, that's probably what heaven looks like, right? And yes, right, you can probably find their legalistic spirit on Facebook too, and it's normally in the comment sections of people they've never met telling, how, telling them how they're wrong and they're right. You know what makes this story such good news, right, is that it's the, 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 the character of the, of the father. They're both the rebellious and the religious, the prodigal and the older, can have a relationship with the father and the father wants a relationship with both his boys. But coming to the father always requires a stripping away of the outer to find that we're all the same underneath, that we all need the grace of our heavenly father that was extended to us by his son, Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. Who are you in the story? Who do you most identify with in this narrative? Maybe in this season, you're like, I've been the prodigal and I've definitely been the older son. But right now in this season, I kind of identify with the father. I have a prodigal son or daughter. I want you to know that this is a story of hope, right? This is a story of redemption. God writes new stories. You go to Joshua chapter two, you'll see it says Rahab the prostitute. You go to Matthew chapter one, years in the future, it says Rahab, the great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God is in the business of rewriting stories, turning a mess into a message, trash into a testimony, right? Invite God into, into your relationship with your children. Pray for your children. Don't stop praying. Don't stop loving. Don't stop being a, a person of grace and mercy like this father is. And when And if your prodigal does come home, don't meet them with a lecture and a sermon and I told you so and a wag of your finger. Meet them with open arms like this prodigal met their, or this father met their prodigal. Maybe today you see yourself as the older brother. You feel like you're always performing for God, right? You're serving him instead of being with him. And this has caused you to have no real joy in your relationship with God. Like you don't really like love God. Although you've convinced yourself you have a relationship with him, you don't. My message for you is probably the most painful and challenging is that you need to repent from your self-righteousness, admit your need for God and say, God, would you flood my heart with grace? Help me love people who don't vote like me. Help me love people who are nothing like you. Would you change my heart to match yours? Break my heart for what breaks yours. Finally, you may see yourself as the prodigal. 
You're in a faraway country, for whatever reason. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ. You grew up in church, you're Catholic, whatever it may be, right? But you've never crossed the line, the threshold into the relationship. You're still in, you're still in the front yard. Whether it be you've never entered into a relationship with him, whatever it is, or maybe you're just, you think life is going to be found elsewhere. My message for you is come home. Come home. One Christmas many years ago, um, my dad made these big, beautiful presents and put them on our front yard as decor. They matched up the lights that he put on the house that he spent hours and hours putting up. My dad was like one of those dads that like loved putting, you know, decor for Halloween and Christmas on the outside of the house, like win the, the block party or whatever, you know. And I remember he spent hours doing this. And he made these, 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 these big and beautiful uh, presents. And the, on the outside, right, they were eye-catching and beautiful and colorful and had ribbons and a plethora of other things. And the thing about these presents, though, is that if you were to open them, you would find that they were completely and 100% empty. There was nothing of substance inside them, and they offered you nothing but the momentary happiness created by opening them and then only leaving you with the ache of it not being enough. Have you ever, have you ever experienced something like that before? Words, have you ever gone through a season of your life where you accomplished all that you set out to do, right? All that you wanted to do, you reached the top of that ladder, and when you reached the top of that ladder, you realized that your ladder was on the wrong building, leaning against the wrong building, and serenity wasn't there, peace wasn't there, fulfillment, it wasn't there, satisfaction, joy, hope, it wasn't there. Right? It's the young woman who wants nothing more to get married. On the outside, it looks like it's finally going to be the thing that's going to bring her heart fulfillment, validation, satisfaction, the hope, identity that she needs. Now the honeymoon stage is gone. Her life is kind of full of bottles and diapers and carpools and vans and honeymoon stage is completely evaporated. And now she realized she's in a broken marriage and she's emptier than she was before. It's the accomplished businessman, right? He drives a Tesla, has a parking spot to name out the office. On the outside, it looks like he's got the full appearance of what a full life looks like and even the American dream, but on the inside. He has a marriage that's collapsing and kids that went from calling him dad to just his first name. Only 15 and 20 and 25 years into the whole thing, he realizes though that he abandoned his family for ambition and it wasn't worth it. It was leaning against the wrong building. In other words, here's the question. Have you ever had your dreams come true, but instead of letting you rest, they kept you awake, restless? Ever reached out, right, to the external world, to something and someone to give you peace and fulfillment, only to be met with a greater sense of emptiness and confusion? Yeah, I've had moments like that too. And here's why. There is only emptiness in the faraway country. See, the key to fullness is to come home and come into the Father's arms. In the morning, um, around five or six, um, I hear what every young dad's two favorite words are. As my wife slaps me in the face and says, your turn. <laughs> so I get up and, you know, she's been up, so. <laughs> I get up, I go to the side of my bed, I'm greeted with the little smiling Noel, and I, I pick her up and uh, I bring her into the kitchen where I make a, a warm bottle of milk and I make myself a cold brew. We sit down together and our living room, and I, I hold her, and I give her her bottle, and I'm drinking my, my coffee, and my, her warm bottle eventually puts her to sleep, right? And uh, my cold glass of coffee eventually wakes me up. Just about, she's about to fall asleep. I, I place her in what you saw was a little pink thing called the docketot. It's a little makeshift bed I place beside her. And I place her right about here, and so her head is here, and her legs are over there, and she sleeps for about 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes she does the very same thing. She opens her eyes and she searches for her horizon to see if anything and someone is there. And she doesn't, she's not immediately met with me because I'm not in the immediate proximity of her horizon. And so she starts to scream and to cry out. And then she does this interesting things with her hands where she looks like she's grasping out for something in the external world to bring her comfort, to let her alone that she's not alone in this whole crazy world, this big world, and she's not by herself. 
So I, I pick her up, right? I, 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 get to, I touch my nose to hers. I sit back down with her and I rock her. And I tell her that I'm here. And only then, right, does her fear, her anxiety begin to mute. And her quest for searching has subsided. Man, maybe you're here today and you find yourself reaching out for something and someone to bring you comfort, a sense of direction, hope. Maybe know that you're not alone. So maybe you, write, you, think, it's, you think it's going to be success. Man, if I could make this amount of money, have that amount of my 401k, if I could have my students graduate or my kids graduate from that college, if I could go to that college, if I could live in this neighborhood, drive that car, maybe for you it's a relationship, right? Maybe you're like, if I could just find Mr. or Mrs. Right, get that guy or girl to look at me and like me, enter into a marriage or any host of external things that we use to validate the vacancy in our hearts or to bring fullness into our hearts. You know, the truth is human nature doesn't change. And so what is true of Noel is also true for us. See, the truth is we may gain days on our years and yeah, some gray hair on our heads, but we don't ever outgrow the need for our Heavenly Father. To begin to wrap up, you remember in the beginning, I started with some questions. What do I want Noel? What do I want my daughter to know of me? How am I revealing myself to or sharing my heart for her, my desires with her? I want her to know that every time, every time she reaches out into the external world for something and someone that I'm going to be there, I also want to say publicly, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to be the father in this story always. But I'm going to say publicly, I'm going to try each and every single day. Next thing I want her to know is this, is that regardless of the trouble that she gets herself into, that I want to be a father worth coming home to like this father was with my arms wide open. Now, here's the most important question of them all today. Where did I learn these things? I learned them from my heavenly father who came out to, to, came out to meet us in the person of Jesus Christ and welcomes us, right, the very same way that this father embraced his wayward son. So as we wrap up today, here's my message for you. Today, if you find yourself far from God, come home. And when you start your trek back home, you're gonna find that God's gonna meet you more than halfway. Let's pray. Father, today I am forever grateful that I get to call you Father, that we get to call you Father, that you're a good Father. I realize today, God, that the word Father is a complicated word. Many of us have positive memories of our Father. Many of us have negative memories of our Father. And many of us don't have any memories of a Father. But God, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts so that we can see you as a loving Father. Today, many of us here may identify with the story of the Father in this story, in this narrative. We have someone, a son or daughter, God, that's a prodigal. We pray, Father, that you would work on their heart in this moment. By your spirit, draw them to, back to you and back, back to them. We may identify the older son, legalistic and religious, thinking, God, in some sense of the way that you owe us. We pray, Father, you would shatter our heart. And God, that you would rebuild it with a heart of flesh. Finally, Lord, many of us here today may find ourselves being the prodigal. And we are looking for life in anything and everything but you. I pray, Lord God, that you'd work in our hearts so that we would turn back to repent Turn from our sin and towards you. Lord God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. Hey, would you guys stand with me? I want to thank you guys so much for being here uh, today. If you need prayer, there's going to be some people down front. Maybe you need a Bible. We'd love to give you that. Um, Next week, we're launching a brand new series. You're not going to want to miss it. See you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.